we've been in this sermon series last couple weeks, and you know, if you're just joining us today, uh, seriously, we're so glad you took a risk on coming to church. We know it takes a lot of courage. We're so glad you're here. And uh, what you're diving into is we've been in a couple weeks, we started uh, a sermon series a couple weeks ago. It's called Rhythms and Rituals, and I hesitated calling it that. The word rhythms is an okay word. Like we get rhythms, you know, we sort of, people desire rhythms in their life. But the word ritual was a word I was nervous about. You know, just not sure I want to put that in there because we get sort of nervous with rituals. You know, it's like that sounds a little bit kind of religious, sort of a sounding word. And, you know, what, what, what's a ritual? You know, what are they going to have us do? But the idea is that, is that um, the early church, these early Christ followers who, who saw Jesus alive and it just turned the whole world upside down and they just started to expand and grow that uh, it wasn't just like a philosophy that they believed and it wasn't just an ideology. It wasn't just sort of like a doctrinal set of beliefs that they just like sort of check off. It was, it was they adopted like new rhythms, new habits, new, new things that they did like with their bodies, with their hands and their feet, just new practices as a community that shaped them tremendously and continues to shape us today. And so a couple of weeks ago, we, we, we talked about bad habits and we talked about how like we, all of us have some bad habits and some of us have really good habits. And uh, the thing about bad habits is what doesn't work, like for you to get rid of a bad habit, what doesn't work is for you to look at your bad habit and say, stop it, bad habit, you know, or you to like look at yourself and be like, all right, just stop doing that. That usually doesn't work very well, or at least it doesn't work for very long. Um, the, The best way to get rid of a bad habit is to replace it with a habit you do want. It's called habit replacement. That's the best way to sort of get rid of bad habits is to start new ones. But that's essentially what this early church did. They started new rhythms and these habits that has shaped the Christian church for centuries. And it's worth us going back and looking at some of those things. What can we learn? You know, what rhythms and things can we adopt and practice today that are going to be so formative for us to wrap our, our lives around this this story. So every good zombie movie starts off, has, has every good zombie movie has this scene where everybody's in the control room and they have this big screen of, the, of a map of the world and there's always like a red dot where it's like patient zero, that's where the outbreak started. And then, you know, everybody's eyes get really big and they're like, oh no, the world's gonna end, you know, because the red is like spreading and spreading across the globe and it's like, oh no, zombies are taking over. And that's essentially what is happening in Acts chapter two, where we've been looking at. It's the beginning of the church. It's like this red dot on the map. There's not that very many of them, but at the book of Acts, and the book of Acts is in the New Testament, and it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the eyewitness accounts of Jesus's life. And then there's the book of Acts, and it's the Acts of the Apostles. And it, talk, it tells us the story about this church, and they just start to expand and grow. And it's just, and it's incredible because they, they don't have, they're not rich. I mean, they don't have, they don't have like, uh, you know, big, like, big bankroll bank, you know, like, like pushing them forward. I mean, they're, but they're just like, it's a grassroots movement that just expands and grows. And so we've been looking at that. And, uh, and I want to read to you what we've, what we've, what we've read the last couple of weeks. The context is that, is that uh, Jesus uh, came and he died and he rose again, and he, but he didn't leave us alone. He gave us a job to do. He said, I want you to go make disciples, baptizing them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do everything I've commanded you to do. And then he says, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you sort of a deposit of myself so that you have the power to be able to be the church that you get to be in the world. And then, um, and then this early church is a gathering and, and Peter gets up and he preaches this amazing sermon. And, and it says that 3,000 people got baptized just right there. And this church is just starting to roll. And then here's what it says. Okay. First we see that Peter witnesses through his words, but then we see 
that a powerful witness to the world is the content and the character of this Christian community. What kind of a community was this? And the kind of community they, they built was a powerful witness, as much as any sermon was, as much as any sort of verbal presentation was. Here's what it says. It says, Acts chapter 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So then all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. There's these new things that they're doing, these new rhythms and practices, and, and we're trying to do that too as a church. I, I showed you this a couple of weeks ago, but there's this sort of like church calendar that, uh, that we're sort of entering into a, as a church. Um, it's, it's, you know, we all, you already, this shouldn't be that new because we already live our lives sort of rhythmically. You know, we all live our lives based on like the seasons of fall and summer and winter and spring and all that. And, you know, some of you live sort of rhythmically based on, you know, the, your sports team that you enjoy or the show that you watch. You know, we sort of already do that. But the church for centuries has sort of like organized their calendar in some similar rhythms. And so at Westside, we've done this thing called Advent, and it's the season leading up, uh, leading up to Christmas. And then uh, there's some other things. There's this season uh, called Epiphany, which we're, we're, which we're in right now. And then that leads us to Lent. And you've heard about Lent, but Lent is kicked off on, on uh, Ash Wednesday. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in the weeks to come because Ash Wednesday is getting really close. And that's going to sort of kick off a season for us of, of experiencing Lent as, as Westside would do it. And that leads us to Easter. And there's sort of a season of time where, where churches would talk about the, re, the reality of the resurrection. And then it goes to Pentecost. And then it goes to this other sort of time, which they named Ordinary Time, which I thought is they could have used a better name than Ordinary Time. But that's the name that they picked, Ordinary Time. And, and you guys, like centuries, and just churches all over the world just sort of run their sort of their, this is their rhythm. Now, I didn't grow up in a church like this at all. I mean, we didn't do any of this stuff. This is brand new. Our church just started doing Advent. My family just started doing Advent just alongside Westside doing it just, you know, several years ago when we really started to take it seriously. And it's been a really beautiful thing for our church. So I thought this year, we're going to enter into this a little bit more, especially with Lent. What is Lent all about? And, and so we're going to talk about that. Um, but that's what the church was, you know, they were, they were building these, these, these rhythms and rituals. And what did they do? What did they devote themselves to? Well, Acts 2 tells us they did four things. Four things. It says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And what that means is, is if, if the resurrection really did happen, then that means what are, the, what are the millions of implications of what that means for my life, for living, for, for, just, for just being a community. And so they would gather together and they would process those things. It says they were devoted to fellowship, and we're going to talk about that today. Um, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. So this means two things. It means that they got together and they just ate good food together and they enjoyed each other's company. It also means that they broke bread, meaning they took communion together. So just what we did this morning is what they would gather to do. They would, they would take the cup and they would take the bread and they would let it remind them deeply of, of Jesus' sacrifice and his life bound to our life for us. And then it says they devoted themselves to prayer or the prayers. Your, your version of the Bible might say the prayers. And that, another way to say that is they, got, they gathered together to sort of worship together, to be together. They would pray with one another. They would pray psalms. They would, they would sing hymns and they would, they would encourage one another. Those were 
Those are some of the practices that they adopted. And the Church of Jesus has been doing that um, ever since for centuries. But what I want to talk about today is the second one right here, fellowship. It says they devoted themselves to fellowship. Now, fellowship isn't a word that you, we normally use like in our normal life. Fellowship is a little bit of a churchy word. It's like code language word. Um, Christians use it often. So, you know, sometimes we'll be at church or we'll hang out with some, you know, Christian friends and we, say, we walk away saying like, man, that was a great time of fellowship, you know? But you don't really use that word with like your non-Christian friends. Like you don't like call your non-Christian friends and say, man, I am so excited tonight for us to just fellowship together. You know, like, or you're like, this has just been a great time of fellowship, right? Like people don't usually use that language outside the church. But in the church, it's usually typically means um, hanging out. It means hanging out. It means that we, we had a great time hanging out together. Now, this word fellowship um, means hanging out, and you should certainly hang out, okay? Hanging out is good. You should have some friends that you hang out with. But this word fellowship means so much more than just hanging out. It's so rich and deep, and we're gonna spend our time this morning looking at it and what it means for us. So uh, there's a guy named Luke, and Luke uh, was the author of Matthew, Mark, Luke, right? He's the author of that eyewitness account. And then he, he is the, the author and the eyewitness account sort of gatherer for the book of Acts. And so Luke, the author of Acts, you, and when he says that they devoted themselves to fellowship, he uses this Greek word called koinonia. Koinonia, all right? Uh, if you've been around church for any amount of time, like you probably heard this word koinonia, or maybe your grandma has like a doily thing, like, you know, like knitted together with the word koinonia on it, or like there's a pillow at her house with the word koinonia. I don't know. But it's this like really Christian word that we don't use that often, but it's this Greek word. It's kind of fun to say, by the way, too. So can we say it together? Koinonia, koinonia. And the word koinonia is a deep, deep, rich, rich word, and it means hanging out, but it means so, so, so much more. Funny, uh, funny fact, this word, koinonia, was the final word in the 2018 Scripps National Spelling Bee competition. It was the last word. The kid at the very end got this word. He spelled it correctly, and he won the spelling bee. And this is that word. And what does it mean? What does it mean? Well, um, Luke is trying to teach us what it means. He's trying to help us understand what it means. And here's what he says. All right, this is verse 44, what we just sort of read. He says this, is all the believers were together and had everything in common. So remember, he just said that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to koinonia. And then when he gets to this point, it says, and all the believers were together and they had everything in, guess what word he uses? In koinonia. They had everything in koinonia. What does that mean? Well, Luke, what are you trying to say? What, is, what does this mean? Well, he, this, the rest of this little passage is just is trying to give us a picture of what's koinonia. He says, here's what they did. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. And then they broke bread together in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Um, probably the best way to describe koinonia is that it's this deep, deep commitment to sharing. A deep commitment to sharing. To sharing my time, to sharing my resources, sharing my stuff, sharing my life. It's this like deep, deep kind of connectedness where, where suddenly like 
we just, we're just compelled to just share our lives and share our things with one another. That's what this word koinonia is trying to get at. Now, another way to describe it is to look at the opposite of koinonia. Don't put up the, the picture yet, but I was on a walk in the, this last summer in my neighborhood, and I was walking around, and I just saw this, like, I saw this thing on the curb, and I was like, oh, I got to take a picture of that. And so, like, I took a picture. I looked to make sure nobody was, like, watching me because it looked like I was, like, casing a house to, to rob it or something, you know, or, like, t- or, like, I don't know, you know, I was, like, uh, taking this picture. And it's a great example of the antithesis to koinonia, all right? This, this what I'm going to show you, is the opposite of koinonia. Can we look at what I took a picture of? So I walked by and I saw this, and it just made me laugh, all right? It just made me laugh. So you can see over here, you got this guy's yard and, you know, kind of his property line, and then you see, like, this guy's house over here. And, you know, there's this, always, this is like an awkward part of our, of our houses, right? It's like, wh- whose job is this? Like, you know, what is this little part out here? And so we, but what really made me laugh about this is, like, that's like three feet, you know? That's like an extra, uh, you know? That's like two seconds more of work. That's like eight calories, maybe four calories, right? I mean, it's like so nothing. You've already mowed the rest, and it's like, you know, you just finished. But instead, it's like, uh, I'm stopping right there, you know? I'm not going to mow that little section. This is the opposite of koinonia, because koinonia says, oh my gosh, like, this might be my side and that's your side, but like, you know what, we, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna work together, we're going to own this together. You know, koinonia is this deep, deep sort of connectedness where like this sort of stuff um, doesn't happen. It goes on, and a few months down the line, here's what happens, is we're given these glimpses in the book of Acts of how this, 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 these Christians continue to grow with one another, and you could take that slide down, because everybody's trying to look at the license plate number to see if you know that person back there. Um, you see these little glimpses into Christian community, and just a few months later, perhaps, and just a few chapters later in the book of Acts, we, we kind of get an update on this community. What's going on with them? And here's what it says. It says... Um, This is Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. It says, And all the believers were one in heart and mind. Now just stop right there. It says all the believers were one in heart and mind. This is is an incredible claim. It's an incredible statement. We don't know exactly how many people this is talking about, but we know it's more than 3,000. Because remember there was 3,000 people that that were baptized. And then even before that, there was a bunch of Christ followers. And then it says that the Lord was adding to their number daily. And this is months later. So who knows how many people this is? But it says that they were, and, and here's what we know about these people, is that it was a very diverse group of people. They had been brought, they had come to Jerusalem for a pilgrimage feast. It was the Feast of Pentecost. And the one thing they had in common was that they were all Jewish. But they were all very diverse. They're coming from different ethnic backgrounds. And, you know, Jerusalem during Pentecost would have just been hopping. I mean, extended relatives from all over are there. Just like the streets are filled and you're walking by and looking down alleyways. And there's all these different smells and foods and, you know, these different, these, you know, these different like dietary stuff all happening in the city. And, but what happens is they have this powerful experience together at Pentecost and they just, they just stay. And then, so there's all these people that should have gone home, but now they're here in Jerusalem. They're just still hanging out. And so picture like you've got your extended relatives living at your house, but if you have an extra bed, you've got like somebody else's aunt and uncle living with you, you know, and, and you've got all these like stranger people that you've just, they're just, people are living together. And these are people you just met. And Luke says that, here's what's so cool, everybody. You know, one of the things about this early church, he says that they were, 
They were one in heart and mind. Like, wow. Like, when does that happen? I mean, when does that happen with like, like this many people in a room this size, you know? I mean, like, that's incredible that they were, they were so sort of connected together. And then it says this. It says that, uh, you know, the, no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. And it says, but they shared everything that they had. Or your version might say, they had everything in common. And guess what word Luke chooses to use there again? He says they had everything in koinonia. That there is this deep, deep koinonia that was happening. This deep, deep sharing, this unity that these people had. Very diverse group of people. And yet there was this, there was this connectedness that they had. To the point where it says that they didn't claim their possessions as their own, but they shared everything they had. Um, and what's interesting is that they didn't do this because like somebody had to come in and give a sermon on it. Nobody came in and said like, all right, now you're Christians now, so you need to share. You know, sharing is, sharing is caring. You know, like nobody had to come in and do a little talk. I mean, it was just like this was coming out of them. Like this is like the byproduct of these people who are, who are connected and one in this deep way because they've been connected by, by this Jesus who was dead, but now he's alive and everything's different now. Then the plot thickens. Dun, dun, dun. Here it goes. In verse 33, with great power. The apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. They're doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. And then it says this, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them. Your version might say, and great grace was upon them all. And really for the rest of the message this morning, we're going to sort of play with this interaction, with this pairing of ideas of koinonia and grace. Koinonia and grace, because you see them coming up coming up together over and over again. And then he goes on. He says, what did this grace produce in them? They had this koinonia, and it was like, because God's grace was on them. And what did, this, what did this look like? And here's what it says. It says that, God's, that great grace was upon them all, that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. When I read passages, little sections like that, I like to think about like the stuff that it's not saying. I mean, what this is telling us is they had this like really cool, big money and stuff donation and distribution system in place. And you think about all the people gifted in administration who were like behind the scenes in this deal, just making it all work. And we don't get to ever hear about them. You know, we don't know their names. But you know that these people gifted and just in administration, they're just making all this happen. And they were serious about it. I mean, there's like the people are bringing stuff in and stuff is going out. It's this community working out the details of koinonia. It's so, so cool. Um, that there was this understanding that their stuff wasn't their stuff. That this grace had so sort of penetrated their life. But now they're like, they're rethinking everything. They're not just, they're not just believing in some doctrines. But, these, but they're like adopting new practices of like sharing and giving. So cool. Now, some have read this, read this passage of scripture and said, aha, look at this, the first communists right here. 
In fact, in fact, people, people in defense of communism have, have, this is one of the passages that they've looked at to say, look, this is a really, really great system. Look what they did. This is what the early church did is they, there wasn't any ownership among them. And so what they did was they pooled all their stuff together and then, you know, and then the apostles or the man or the government, you know, whatever, then took all that and then distributed it uh, to, to whoever had need, you know? So some of like, oh, look, it's the first communist. Others, and maybe perhaps this is more what we think of because we're from Eugene, others have looked at this and said, whoa, look it, it's like the Bhagwan of the Rashnish. It's like wild, wild country. This is like, these are the first hippies right here. This is what they're doing. They're just like free love and everything. And like, you know, they're just, they're living. Wait a minute. They had everything in common, common, commune, common, commune. Wait, this is like a commune that they're in, you know? And it's like, whoa, look at it, it's the hippies. But this, that's, not, that's not what Luke is trying to, to show us about what koinonia looks like. It's, it's, it's different than that. It's different than like the koinonia that happens in my house right now. Because right now in my house, I've got a two-year-old Dawson. And Dawson has like a kind of like a, a really sick sense of koinonia at my house. Because here's what happens is Dawson has a, has a perfectly good sippy cup of his own. Okay? It's a great sippy cup. We bought like special ones just for his season. The water in it is in the, the right temperature for him. I mean, it's just like perfect. It's right in front of him. But for some reason, for some reason, my cup is better than his cup. For some reason, he thinks my water is like going to be better than his water. And so, you know, he just grabs my water. Or he, he, we make him wonderful food. For some reason, he thinks my food is always better than his food. And so we have to like eat like f- across the table from him. Like we're like shunning him like a leper, you know, because he's like, because he's like grabbing our food and grabbing our water. Because he has this idea of koinonia that's like, what's, my, what's yours is mine. Like, you know, if it's here on the table, it's obviously mine right? And then he drinks my water, and then there's like the weird backwash with the bits of broccoli in it, and then it's like, ah, this is disgusting, you know? And that is not the kind of koinonia that Luke is telling us about. This isn't the kind of thing where, where like, where nobody had any property of their own, there wasn't any ownership. It wasn't, it didn't look like that. What it more looked like is if I'm sitting there at the table, and I've got two, two cups, and I'm like, hey, Dawson needs some more water, and I, I've got some extra. I don't need this necessarily. Or maybe I'm going to choose to give up some of the things that I have because I see a need over here. And so it's this, like, it's this, it's a two-way street thing. It's not as if, as Christians, we should look at your stuff as my stuff. I don't get to walk into your house and say, well, we're Christians, and that's your couch, but it's really my couch. I'm going to sleep on it tonight. <laughs> or, you know, as Christians, we don't get to say, hey, your car, that's actually my car. I'm, I'm going to drive it, you know, out of your driveway. We don't get to do that. That's not koinonia. What koinonia is, is understanding that, man, I've got some stuff. And it's this deep understanding that, see, consumerism teaches us that if something comes to you, it's for you. But what Luke is showing us is that the gospel's messing with people here. The gospel's like doing something, that God's grace is changing these people in a way where now they're rethinking this. Now, they're not, now it's like, hey, maybe what has come to me isn't necessarily for me, or maybe part of it's for me. Like maybe what comes to me is now gets to be my, my privilege and responsibility to give and share with others. And what we see is this radical changing of how these people are viewing their whole lives, but especially how they share and their stuff and what they do with it and why it matters. And Luke seems to think that there's this powerful like work that's happening, like there's this power it's like Luke is trying to say, 
why else, how would people live this way? Why would people live this way? What would push people sort of to the edge to live this way? And the only way that he can describe it is he says, here's the only way I can describe it is great grace was upon them. And it's like Luke is looking at grace, not as if like just like something that you know about yourself. Like grace is like a gift that we get from God. Okay, that's what grace is. It's a, it's a gift that isn't earned. It's just given to us. And, and, you know, this is God's gift to us. So this is what, you know, what was God's response? What was God's response to a group of people who, who are ungrateful, to a group of people who have taken God's good gifts and often squander them? What's God's reaction been to a group of people who tend to dull his voice and dull truth so that we can get away with whatever we want to get away with? That what's his, what's his response been to people who so easily look down our noses at other people who are different than us? Where we easily repaint lines so I come out on top and other people who aren't like me always come out on the bottom. Like what's God's response been to people like that? I mean, it's amazing that sunset still looks so pretty because we pretty much ruined the place. I mean, we pretty much just taken everything that God's given and just said, you know what, God... Hey, thanks for being a pal, but, and I'll come to you when I need some help, but you know, I'm going to kind of take care of this on my own. What's God's response been? I'll tell you what his response has been. His response has been grace. He says, I'm not going to wait for you to come to me. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to choose to bind my life to you and all, and all the punishment and all the, the brokenness that you deserve, I'm going to take that on myself. I'm going to carry it for you. God's response to us has been grace. And so what are we supposed to do with that grace? Well, basement level is we're supposed to receive it and we're supposed to be thankful for it and we're supposed to like walk in this new life. But Luke is saying that something else is going on here. That when you bring on grace, it isn't as if you take it on and you say like, God, thanks for giving me grace. I'm just gonna go about my business now. Thanks for that grace, God. And it isn't if God is like giving grace and he says like, okay, you need some grace, so I'm gonna give you some. And now I'm gonna move on to some other people who need my grace. Notice if Luke is saying that, man, when you experience grace, it's like it, it starts to mess with you. It becomes this like new power in you to what now you start rethinking everything. Now you start looking at your stuff and your time and your resources and it's like, wow, man, what, what, what do I get to do with this? Now, he says that they have, there's this grace that's happened in these people, and that's why this koinonia has, take, has taken place. So I want to I tell you a little story, because the story goes on. And, uh, and about, it's about 15, 20 years later, and, and the church has expanded and grown. And I want to show you this map, because there's a lot going on here. I know the words are really small, uh, so work with me here. But there's a couple places I want you to take note of. All right, First, here's Jerusalem right here. This is where everything got started, Okay. But about 15 to 20 years after, after this movement started, the sort of the, the, um, the, home, the home base of the church moved up to this city up here called Antioch. So this is where sort of the hub is, and this is where the apostle Paul, you've probably heard of him, and he's this great evangelist, and he just starts going and just planting churches and t talking about Jesus. He's alive, he's not dead, and all these churches get planted just all over this region. And there's a bunch of them, um, but one, I want, a couple I want you to take notice of is over there in Greece, you've got Corinth. It's a little bit north of Sparta, by the way, which is pretty cool. And, uh, and there's Corinth. And then I want you to look north up there because then there's uh, this place called Macedonia. And there's Thessalonica and Philippi 
right up there. And Paul is, uh, and, and here's what's happening, is there was a big famine, and you can read about this in the book of Acts. There was a big food shortage in Jerusalem, and it was, and it was extreme, and people were dying. I mean, it was like, it was hardcore. And Paul is in Antioch, and he has this harebrained idea. He's like, he's like, hey, I know what we'll do, guys, is we'll We'll travel around to all these other churches and we'll tell them about what's going on in Jerusalem and we'll kind of do like a fundraiser. And so Paul goes around and he says, hey, let's demonstrate koinonia together. Let's, let's tangibly do this. There's this church in Jerusalem. They need help. Hey, come on, let's give. And so um, he has this conversation with the church in Corinth because apparently here's what happened. The church in Corinth said, oh, there's need in Jerusalem. We want to help. We're going to help. And then months and months later goes by, and Paul is writing to Corinth, and in the first and second Corinthians, he's, he's, he's talking to him about a lot of issues that are happening in the church. But I want to read to you from second Corinthians. Paul, he's continuing to talk to this church, and he's going to tell him a story. And he's going to talk to him about what has been going on up in Macedonia. He's going to tell him a story about koinonia, and he's going to tell him a story about grace. And here's what he says. This is from second Corinthians chapter 8. He says this, and now, brothers and sisters in Corinth, he says, I want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Now, stop right there. Stop right there. If we didn't know anything else in the story, what would you assume Paul is about to tell a story about? You would assume that Paul is going to tell a story about people who who didn't know that they were forgiven, and then they, they realized that they were forgiven, and now they, now they got this grace, and they, and, they're just, and they feel so freed because of this grace that they've given. You would assume that he's about to tell us a story about that, but he's not. He's going to tell us another story about grace, and here's what he says. He says, in the midst of a very severe trial, he's talking about these Macedonian churches, okay? He says, in the very midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Now, this is huge and profound and totally like a whole other sermon, okay? But, I mean, what we know about what's happening in Macedonia right now is, is and we know what's going on because we have some letters to them. They're called First and Second Thessalonians and Philippians. They're in our New Testament. And what we know is that they in Macedonia are, are experiencing also some food shortage. They're very, Paul says, essentially he says they're dirt poor, <laughs> extreme poverty. And we know that they're going through incredible persecution. And what's their attitude in Macedonia? What does it say? It says they've got joy. Whoa. This is the whole like other sermon series in there about what in the world is going on. Imagine you're in Macedonia and your sister's been kidnapped because she associates with Jesus. You don't know where she is. She could be in prison or she could be hanging somewhere. You just lost your job because you associate with Jesus. You're dirt poor. And it says that they have joy. What is going on here? And briefly, what's going on here is that these people are so, so believed that Jesus' life now is in their life, and their lives now no longer are their lives, but it's like found in Christ, that they have this belief that God's grip is so firm on them, that Jesus' grasp is so secure on them, that no matter their circumstance, and no matter, not even death, can loosen Jesus' grip on them. They just got this security that even in the midst of these trials and trouble and pain, that joy is welling up in them. And what does it well up into? It says it wells up. It wells up for them. In this instance, it wells up in rich generosity. And then he goes on. He says this. Um, He says, For I testify, 
right here. He says in verse 3, for I testify, translation is I swear to God. This is what Paul's saying. He's like, I swear to God. He goes, I swear to God that they gave, remember he's talking to the Corinthians about the Macedonians. He's like, you wouldn't believe what the Macedonians gave, Corinthians. I mean, it's insane. I swear to God, they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. He goes, yeah, God, like I was so surprised. These Macedonians, they're dirt poor and they gave this gift to the Jerusalem church. It blew our minds. And then he says, and then he says it was entirely on their own. We didn't coerce them. We didn't twist their arms. In fact, he says, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of, guess what that word is? Come on, it's just too perfect. What's that word? Koinonia. It says, it's, he's, Paul's like saying, guys, you wouldn't believe it. He's like, we were going to leave the Macedonians out. Like, we weren't even going to ask them to contribute to this gift because we knew they're going through hard times, they're difficult things. Like, we'll just, we won't even ask them about it. We'll ask some of the other churches. But the Macedonians heard about this gift that they were excluded from, and they're like, what? You're not leaving us out? No, no, no. We're going to contribute to this. Like, we're going to give to this. Like, we're, we, don't leave us out on this. And Paul's like, and they just gave. That's incredible. He says, it's just incredible that they didn't want to be left out of this koinonia. The, and, and remind you that these Macedonians have never met these Jerusalems, or <laughs> Macedonians have never met these people in Jerusalem. They don't know them. I mean, but they just say, hey, there's a famine in Jerusalem. Man, we know what that's like. Uh, they're going through deep hard times, persecution. Man, we know what that's like. Oh, man. We can't, we can't help it. We've got to give. We've got to give. And then Paul turns his sort of direction to the Corinthians, and he gives them some, some exhortation because apparently, here's what happened. Remember, the Corinthians said, we want to help. Sign us up, Paul. And then like a couple months go by, and there's nothing from the Corinthians. <laughs> they kind of forgot, or maybe they looked at the bank after they pledged, you know, and they were like, oh, maybe not. You know, like maybe we can't give. And so here's what Paul says to them. He says this. He says, but since, hey, Corinthians, but since you excel in everything. He says, hey, you're excelling in faith. you got lots of faith. That's great. In speech. I mean, you're really good communicators. And man, that's awesome. And, and then in, in your knowledge, you got lots of knowledge. And you know some stuff. And, and complete earnestness. In the love that we've kindled in you, he says, like, you, you're very, you know, you're very earnest. I mean, you want to do the right thing. He says, that's awesome. Keep all that up. I love all that that's going on. But then he says this, but see to it that you also excel in this grace, in this grace of giving. He says, you can, you're, I'm so glad you're growing in all these other ways, but I want you to grow, I want you to grow in this grace. And you see what Paul is, is telling us. And you see what, I guess here's, here's kind of the bottom line of what I'm trying to tell us. Is that grace isn't something that we just sort of get and then we, and then we move on. And we kind of just take it and we're grateful for it and we just keep doing what we're doing. No, no, no. Grace, it messes with you. And it becomes this like power within you. To where now, now, nobody has to like give a rousing sermon for us to like want to be generous. That now like we don't need any sort of Sarah McLaughlin song, you know, to get us riled up to give, you know. That we don't, we don't need that kind of stuff because if you are following Jesus, there is this grace 
that's supposed to be in your mind, but it's also supposed to be this like driving engine in your heart to where now generosity and giving and sharing and koinonia isn't just like stuff that we're supposed to do. Like we're Christians, it's what we're supposed to do. No, no, those generosity isn't something we're supposed to do. It's who we are. It's like in us because of the God that we serve, because of his rich generosity towards us. And that's exactly how Paul sums it up. He's about to sum it up for the Corinthians. Here's what he says at the very end. He says this. He says, for I know, or sorry, for you know the grace that our Lord Jesus Christ, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake and my sake and our sake, he became poor. So that you and I and us, through his poverty, that we might become rich. Whoa. Koinonia. How does koinonia even work? The only way that Luke can describe it is it's like, man, these people, these people, you would not believe the sharing, the koinonia that was happening. And the only way I can describe it is grace. They just had grace. Grace happened to them. Grace was in them and it overflowed in rich generosity. Because the God that we serve overflows in rich generosity. Okay, so what does this mean for us? What are the implications? Well, first of all, first of all, when you look at her, hum, uh, sorry, when you look at Christian history, when you look at church history, here's what you got to know. See, I don't know what kind of church history you know about. Maybe you took a, a church history class at the University of Oregon, and they taught you, they told you all the bad stuff about church history. They talked to you about the Crusades. And they talk to you about abuses and they talk to you about all like things, you know, and it's easy to look at church history and say like, oh man, but man, here's what you got to know. Christians from the beginning have been known by their exceeding extravagant generosity. That that has been one of the main things that's marked us. Listen, sermons are a good thing. The faith comes through hearing and, you know, proclaiming the gospel is a beautiful thing. But one of the main things that proclaims the gospel to our world is what kind of community we are, what practices we live out, because the, the resurrection of Jesus is the foundation. And what has marked Christians through the centuries, what has caused the world to stop and say, what is it with these people? It's our generosity. That's part of who we are. It's not what we do. It's who we are. What are the implications for Westside? Well, um, I would, the first thing I'd say is what you might expect me to say after you know, talking about a passage, a passage like this. What you'd expect me to say is you'd expect uh, you know, to say that if you're a part of Westside, then if you're a part of any church, really, it means that you are supposed to be a part of the church. It means that if koinonia is going to be happening here, that means that we all get to contribute to it. And so if this is your church, then that means that we so want you. The part of what it means for us to be a part of a church is to be a part of a church, to, to share, to give, to be a part of it, to contribute. That it's so easy sometimes, in, especially in American culture, for us to come to church and consume. But Christ followers have something different going on. No, 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 we're, we're going to contribute. Now, we recognize that you might be in fly-in-the-wall mode right now. All right, you're in fly in the wall mode, and that is okay with us. That is okay with me. I don't know what your story is. Maybe you just, maybe you got really hurt by church in the past. Maybe it was 10 years ago, and you've just been stayed away, but now, like, suddenly you're putting your, you're dipping your toe in, you know, just kind of getting in. Or maybe it's really fresh for you. You've been really, really hurt. Or maybe you're sort of new, you're a new Christian, and like, oh, this is new, and I don't get it all. Um, you might be in fly in the wall mode right now, and please, 
just know that's, we're glad that you're there. We're glad to be a church where you can be a fly on the wall. But we don't want you to be a fly on the wall for too long. And the reason isn't a selfish thing. The reason is actually it's for you. The reason is if you stay a fly on the, for a, a, as a fly on the wall for too long and you're not sort of contributing and all the different ways that we get to contribute to this thing, then what will happen is exactly what Paul says to the Corinthians. He says, hey, you might be growing in all these other ways, and that's awesome. He says, but I really want you to grow in this grace because there's something happens when we grow in this grace where we are sort of pushed and forced to mature. And what Paul is saying, and what, guess what I'm saying to us is don't be in fly in the wall mode too long. Because, because you might grow in some really beautiful ways, but there's going to, if, if, you, you, if you haven't taken that step to, to figure out what generosity looks like, to be a contributor, then there's going to be parts of you that are going to remain immature. There's going to be parts of you that are going to remain undeveloped. And God's like, man, this is a beautiful place to grow, is in this gift. Here's the encouraging part, is the encouraging part is, guys, at Westside, this is happening. I mean, this is, koinonia is happening all over our church, and it is humbling to watch and humbling to be a part of. I'm just so proud of us. I mean, it's happening just all over the place. My friend Beth just bought a new house in the neighborhood. She's like, hey, I need help with painting. Tons of people there painting. Bethany, we're at your house. You bought a house. We're like painting. Just people you didn't even know showed up to your house. And we're just like, hey, let's do this together. I mean, it's just happening all the time. Like, hey, is there a need? I've got a need over here. And people are just meeting needs. It happens when, when people have babies around here, when people have a surgery or something, there's meal chain, uh, sort of meal trains. And people are just jumping on board these trains. And people are showing up to your house that you don't even know. But they're like, hey, I saw the meal train. And, you know, and I just want to contribute. And like, hey, this is who I am. You know, and here's some food for you. And it's like, whoa, what is going on? Just people with all these meals. It's incredible. Is incredible. Just this week, Joanna, she's a, Joanna Munson, she's a teacher, and uh, I saw that she posted something on the women's Facebook page that said, hey, I've got a family in my school that they don't go to Westside, but, and I don't know if they're Christians or not, or, you know, whatever, that doesn't matter. They just had a fire, and they lost everything. And I need, the, I need some clothes for a five-year-old kid. I need some canned goods. I need some, you know, some clothes for, like, do you guys have this stuff? And oh my gosh. She's like, hey, just drop it off on my doorstep. I dropped off something at her doorstep, and there was just like tons of stuff on her doorstep. I mean, people just like drop enough stuff for these people, people that we don't know. That's beautiful. I mean, it's just happening. Do you know what some people do here that is just insane? There's some of us here that just because we've started to build these habits in our lives that we, we, we get paid from our jobs, and then we give money back to the church. And we do it at the first of the month, not at the end of the month, because we know that if we do it at the end of the month, there's not going to be any left because life is just going to like eat all that up, right? So the very first thing we do when we get paychecks, and for some of us, we do 10% of what we get paid because we've just built that like habit in. For some people, more. For some people, we're just, we're, we're at the beginnings of it, so we're figuring it out. But people are like getting paid and giving 10% back to Westside or back to other organizations in town or, or globally that they care about. Guys, do you know what that's called? That's called insane. That's crazy. I mean, that's wild. I mean, some of you got parents or friends who hear that you do that, and they're like, excuse me? <laughs> like, like, what? Like, what do you do? Like, that is insane. And you know what? It is insane. It's absolutely nuts. Do you know what would cause people to be so crazy generous like that? Grace. Grace. It just messes with you. 
And so this is happening in our church, and I couldn't be more thrilled. I'm so excited just to see it continue to grow and flourish, this koinonia that's happening. And then I'll, I'll land the plane here. Oh, oh, I gotta say this too, is we have a church council that we meet once a month, really smart people, wise people. So when you give, here's what we do, here's our conviction, is every penny that's, that's given, man, it matters. It's precious. It's beautiful. It's like this holy thing. So when we get together every month and we look at all the profit and loss stuff and we look at it, here's the two, two things, three things that are happening. We're praying to the Lord, God, thank you. God, thank you for providing. Lord, here's our needs. Here's where we're headed. Here's just where we're just asking you to just give us wisdom and discernment. The other thing that's doing is we're being really conservative. We're not just like, you know, like, hey, we'll try this. We'll do this. You know, like we're not investing in weird stuff. No, we're going to be very conservative. But you know the third thing that's happening? We're going to be really bold. We want to be generous. We're going to figure out. See, we're not just like building an S, uh, like a nest egg here of money, you know? Like we've got some savings, but all the rest that comes in, we're not accumulating. No, we're dreaming. How do we use this? How do we leverage this so that people can know how great Jesus is? All that's happening um, here at our church. Uh, here's where I got to land the plane. And it's, a, it's something that I saw from this passage this time around that I've never really seen before. I've read this passage so many times, and I came across this, this sort of thing, and it was new for me. But notice that... The Corinthians, you know, they said, we'll help, but then they kind of forgot, you know, and so Paul had to remind them and said, hey, I want you to pray for this grace. I want you to grow in this grace. But the Macedonians, they like, nobody had to like, nobody even talked to them about it. They heard about it secondhand and they're like, sign us up. It was like they had to do something. They had to contribute. They had this grace on them to, to, to participate in this giving. And so the hard thing with us is I feel like there's so many needs that we see all the time. There's so many things that come across our, 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 our in, in our inbox, and maybe this week, you know, you got a couple letters from the, from the orphan, you know, organization, and then, the, you know, the, the food organization sent you something, and then you saw a bunch of things on Facebook, and right now you've got three friends that aren't asking for birthday presents, they're asking for donations for causes, you know, and so you've got all these different things, and it's overwhelming, and, you know, it's sometimes we can just be so overwhelmed by all the need and we want to give, we want to be generous, but we're just like inundated and just flooded with all this stuff that you're just like, ah, ah, and it just shuts you down, you know, and you're just like, ah, I just can't, I'm just going to go home and drink a martini, you know, like I just can't do it. It's just too much. And, uh, you know, it can be overwhelming, but here's, here's, I think there's great wisdom in this passage is first of all, first of all, if, like for instance, if this is your church, then this is an area where you get to pray, God, help me grow in this grace. Help me grow in this grace. Help me learn how to be generous. I want this grace at the center of my life. But also maybe our prayers need to sound a little bit like this. Maybe we need to start praying. Maybe you need to start praying. Not only for God to grow this grace in you, but also for God to sort of deposit like a, some specific graces in your life for some specific things. That he's going to just like build this passion in you that nobody has to like preach a sermon about or nobody has to invite you in. But you're just like, God, what needs, what needs can I meet in my context? What, what grace would you want to put on me? And you shouldn't pray that God makes you a superman or a superwoman so that you can take care of every need. Because you can't. That's too overwhelming. You can't take care of every need. But I think God's faithful in that when we ask and say, God, what things can I focus on? What things can I have a grace for? That God just gives us some opportunities and some, and some avenues for that. So we're not overwhelmed by all the different opportunities to give. 
I've been in church world a long time, and, and here's what happens in church world sometimes. is Sometimes you've got a grace for something, you're passionate about something, and it's easy for us sometimes to look down our noses at other people in the church who don't share the same grace for that particular passion that we have. Because you've got a grace for it, you're passionate about it, and it's super easy for you to look down your nose at other people and be like, come on, people! Like, aren't you Christians? Like, you're being so lazy. Like, like get up. Like, this is the rallying cry. We got to go and do something about it. Come on. And, you know, to that person, you know, if that's, if, to that person, here's what I'd say. First, I'd say, hey, Hakuna Matata, you know, just like, hold on. And then, and then I'd say, hey, are, are all these other Christians, are they, they kind of lazy? I don't know, maybe. Um, do, they, do they need more Christian conviction on some things? Yeah, perhaps, I don't know, but. But maybe, but consider maybe they've got a grace for a need for something that's different than yours. And that's okay. That we don't all have to have the same one, but that we, it's actually a beautiful thing that we all have different ones. And you know what's cool is when you meet somebody else that has the same sort of grace that you do, the same sort of passion for that thing, suddenly there's this camaraderie. Suddenly you like start to find your people and you're like, yeah, we're going to go do this together. Here's what we did. Here's what we did for you is just to be helpful is what we did is we have this like little like information sheet handout and it's back at the next steps. And what we did is we just made a list of like, here's all sorts of teams that are going on here, you know, just ways to just like serve and contribute. But also like, here's all these other stuff that we have like a hand in, in our city, locally and globally, maybe things that you didn't even know that we like, that we're participating in. And we've got names of people next to him. So like Marin Glender, she leads parent life. She's helping teen moms and teen dads. And maybe you didn't even know that we sort of did that sort of a thing. Or we've got some other things in here, some other organizations uh, that, uh, that we really care about. We just want you as sort of as, as a response. And we close here and I'll pray in a second. We just want you to grab that because maybe you'll see something. And you just say, God, give me a grace for something here. Or maybe you already have that. And maybe you're just going to bump up and meet some other people who have that same thing. But maybe you're just going to pray, God, what, what, what on here could I do? And it's not going to be all of it, but maybe just one thing or maybe a few things. Lord, give me a grace. Lord, help me grow in this grace. That's my prayer for us. And look at this room, guys. Look how diverse it is. Look at We represent so many streets. We represent so many businesses. That God's placed you in that place, whatever it is. Who knows what needs are there? Who knows what needs get to be met there? But what a beautiful, beautiful thing when the church gets together where we're creating little pockets of the kingdom, little pockets of koinonia. And man, does that preach to the goodness and to the greatness of our God's great grace. I pray for us that great grace would be upon us.